welcome to the Merchant Sales Podcast. This is the podcast for agents and ISOs that want to grow their portfolio in the payment processing industry. Today, Patty, how about Keith and George giving us a lot of good tips, huh? Really, some very interesting insights on how to build and position your portfolio yeah. for sale. I, I just found that very enlightening. Yeah, I think if you have any interest whatsoever in an exit strategy or building a valuable portfolio, definitely want to listen to that interview. And, you know, building a valuable portfolio suggests that you eventually want an exit strategy anyway. So exactly. Everybody should listen to it. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. And then on the Insider's Report, a topic we haven't talked about yet, uh, B2B. B2B. And huge market. Huge opportunity there. Definitely. So definitely check that out. And then, of course, we finish it out with our questions from the field. You won't want to miss that. And uh, so sounds exciting. Yes, very exciting. Uh, I think we have a question on EMV this week, right? That's right. Yes. Yep. So uh, stay tuned, listen through, and thanks for being here. All right, everybody. I am here with Keith and George, who are the co-founders of a company called Transmerit. How are you guys doing today? Doing fantastic. Good. Doing great. Awesome. Well, thank you both for uh, for joining us today on the podcast. Um, of course, we're going to get into some topics talking about kind of acquisition and uh, you know portfolio acquisition, things of that nature. But before we do that, I thought it would be helpful to our listeners to get a little background on both of you. I know you have a, a background here in the industry, so if you could each take you know take a few minutes, tell us about how you got into the industry and, and what kind of led to this partnership. Sure, sure, great. Yeah, um, you know, again, thanks, James, for for having us on. This is Keith Olmo from Transmerit Merchant Services. Uh, with respect to time, I'll I'll, I'll kind of answer this question for the both of us. Sure. George uh, came from uh, you know a similar path in merchant services that probably I'd say ninety nine percent of us who are all in the industry still scratch the back of our head and say, how the heck did we fall into this industry? <laughs> sure. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we, we, we both got into the industry approximately 10 years ago. Okay. We were uh, working um, for the same ISO, you know, very, very large ISO. I was running sales um, at an executive level for all the offices nationally. And George was the top producing vice president. Um, he oversaw the Los Angeles, Chicago, and New Orleans sales offices. He physically worked out of the Los Angeles sales offices, but he had oversight of on Chicago and New Orleans, sure. which uh, he traveled to extensively. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it was, it was a, a heck of a run. You know, we grew the company very fast, you know, you're very large. And the company sold uh, in 2014, uh, kind of the first quarter, if you will. And then there were some transitional things along the way, if you like. And I ended up leaving the company and uh, George shortly thereafter. And at the the end of 2014, uh, George and I formed Transmerit Merchant mm. Services. Uh, we formed the entity, the company, uh, with no investors, um, you know, no 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 capital partner, no portfolio. You know, it was uh, you know George and I looking at each other in a, in a one room, you know, executive suite, you know, the, you know, the, the, oh, interior, yeah. Been the, there. <laughs> the interior one. Yeah. The interior one. Right. You know, saying, Oh, okay. You know, let's, uh, let's, let, let's get some dry erase pens and start whiteboarding this. Right. And, uh, you know, we, yeah, so it, it was uh, very entrepreneurial if you will. And so that was, gosh, actually that was the last week of November. So right before the holidays, 
you know, you know, we're in go mode, you know, we're forming a new company, we're sure. you know, talking to the vendors, we want to get registered. And as you know, everyone's kind of like, well, but you know, we're, we're not really going to do anything till January. Right. So, uh, you know, so George and I, you know, forced ourselves into registration and uh, we actually hopped on board with at the time oh still um vantif now now world pay sure mm-hmm. and you know so we got registered with them and in january 2015 so call you know it was a good six-week process yeah uh, we we got our npas and we started selling again it was george and i in a in an executive suite and we started selling deals and building the company organically um, you know, from there, you know, we grew the company with the model we were very familiar with. It's the uh, appointment setting, outside sales model, having agents across the sure. country, you know, showing up to appointments. This is a model. Um, it can be very, very difficult. You know, not, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying you just close your eyes and get it done. But we knew the KPIs very well. Sure. So we, we, grew, we grew the company under that, under that sales model for 24 months. I mm-hmm. We grew to Transmerit again very fast, very quickly, and uh, we have now repositioned Transmerit to grow by way of acquisitions and the affiliate partnerships, uh, the ISVs. You know, really what you know. You know, I actually listened to sure. you know you speak about that and kind of more in our industry, kind of that, the ISV model. Right. Um, so that's you know that's where we are now. We we are extremely proud of of what we've built. You know what we've done and and where we're headed. Yeah, and I mean, really, in a, in a, of course, you guys have that that long that you know the ten years of experience kind of coming into it. But I mean, it's pretty impressive, really, what you guys have built from 2015, really, till now. It's you know, that's a pretty quick ramp up period. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, this this was you know uh, this this was the model that comes with extreme, uh, I guess, the best way to put it, sacrifice uh, <laughs> requires know, like, patience. You know, you, yeah, yeah, you know, you know, each day you're like, eh, that was pretty much a year off my life at the end of the day. All right. Uh, but again, you know, you know, with the right, you know, dynamic and, and in partnership, and you know, hey, hey, I mean, look, you know, with the will to succeed, um, you know, we we got to exactly where we wanted to be. So sure. then we could reposition towards the acquisitions and uh, that that isv model which is you know really really intriguing for us yeah just just really curious if you don't mind um you know when you were sitting down and you were sort of plotting your 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 course how did that fit in in terms of the the time that it would take you to build up your business to the point that you could then go to the next level had you had you figured that out in your heads that it was going to take two or three years or did you expect it to take longer or less you know, great question, uh, Patty, and, and and I'll answer that you know in detail. And, and you know, please, you know, because because we got to the finish line, I promise you that you know the the goal was in place, but the plan, you know, it, it always has to change. Oh, sure, right, right, has to be fluid. You know, I mean, right. You know, you you run straight into that wall, and you know, George and I are the first to admit. Well, we'll we'll put our head down and. We're going to keep running into that wall about five, six, ten, maybe fifteen times till we're both bleeding and like, okay, maybe we need to figure out a different plan. <laughs> but mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, the, when the ramp up incurred, um, it was we, we were both living in Los Angeles, so we we pushed go in Los Angeles. That's where we were both residing, and we said, okay, you know, this is the model. We you know, we, you know, we understand the P and Ls, we understand the margins, we understand the KPIs, and it's a it's a very strict and dominant model where if you 
you know, when there's slippage, man, it, it can gobble you up. Mm-hmm. Um, so what what L.A. County hit go on was um, uh, raising minimum wage, okay, from you know, uh, approximately ten fifty to fifteen dollars over five years, uh-huh. and in the first couple of years, there's going to be a minimum wage increase of thirty seven percent. So we knew that was going to hit our P and Ls and our expenses, and the model we ran did require employees and payroll and right. an extreme amount of overhead, which mm-hmm. we weren't afraid of as long as we stayed within that KPI. So the plan was, is we're going to ramp this up as hard as we can, as fast as we can, and, you know, see if we could outpace the, you know, increase of cost. Right, sure. And, uh-huh. we, and when that imbalance came to reality, you know, is when we said, you know, okay, okay, so now let's focus on our, our reposition, you know, where we where we wanted to be. So that model was based on, look, you know, we're going to hit go, we're going to get into the race. And then the finish line was about that 24 months, uh-huh. simply because that race was going to, you know, came with an extreme expense if you didn't get there. Right, right. Sure. Okay, yeah. thank you. So uh, let me ask you guys this question. Not sure which one of you want to answer this, but, you know, I think for a lot of our listeners, in the back of their mind, you know, they're thinking about an exit strategy, whether it's, you know, next month, next year, 10 years from now. And, you know, I remember when I got my first, uh, and actually in the last episode, I talked about it a little bit of, you know, the first time I got my $10,000 buyout, you know, I thought I was uh, really doing well. Uh, you know, it's funny, but, you know, that's that's a big thing in our industry. So you guys have a lot of experience in buying portfolios, buying books of business. Um, t- tell the ISOs out there a little bit more information of, you know, what kind of portfolios are you looking to purchase and why? You know, what's what's the rationale behind the portfolios you're looking to buy and, and uh, help them kind of understand that a little bit? Sure, I'll go ahead and jump on this. This is George Sayuni. Thanks, uh, George. James and Patty, thanks for having us. Sure. Uh, so I would say first and foremost, when we're talking about acquisitions or you know buying and selling portfolios, I'll just take a step back with regards to the specifics as to what we're looking for, just for a second. Because I think the biggest hurdle whenever you're trying to align or sell a portfolio is you know you really got to align the buyer and seller's expectations. You know, the seller sure. always wants top dollar. Mm-hmm. They always usually think that it's worth considerably more than maybe what the market's currently trading at. And obviously, the, the buyer is always looking for the best value. So if you're, if you're an agent or an ISO and you're looking to sell all or a portion of your book, you know, don't be afraid to ask for the number you're looking for. However, before you enter in the conversation, in, in our opinion, you really need to know your numbers and kind of where your portfolio sits. I mean, you should have a really good understanding of, you know, how many accounts do you have? How many accounts are processing versus not processing? What your attrition rates are. You just really need to understand the key performance indicators of your portfolio. Mm -hmm. And I think when the agent and or the ISO has a good understanding of that, it brings a good expectation to the table when you're looking to sell. And then, you know, when you're talking about what are we looking to buy, from an acquisition standpoint, I think, you know, understanding those numbers from the beginning as an agent or an ISO to really, you know, use that formula and how you want to create and build your portfolio is really going to affect your sales process. You know, what we're looking for when we're looking to buy a portfolio is, you know, we prefer, you know, a well-diversified portfolio. Typically, sure. we like brick and mortar, mm-hmm. you know, uh, retail businesses. Uh, you know, the, the small independent shops are our ideal because typically, you know, they're they're going to be around and those are going to be really sticky. 
for the most part. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we're also looking for portfolios that are priced properly. And what we mean by that for us, you know, we're really, you know, the way that we run our shop at Transmerit Merchant Services, we're a cost plus or an interchange plus pricing program. We like to be very transparent in our pricing model. You know, we don't like to see, you know, in our own model as well as in the purchases, we don't like to see a lot of junk fees, you mm-hmm. know, really heavy annuals or anything of that Someone's nature. Someone's going to drive attrition. You know, right. Right. They're going to go away sooner or later. And then, you know, in the market today, you know, everybody's giving away everything for free for the most part. It's kind of that race to zero where the entry point in the market for the business owner, you know, right now is typically a free, you know, placement of equipment, you know, the lowest rates that they can find available, et cetera. And if you're not competitive in that, in the way that you built your book, you know, it, it's not really going to be sustainable from a buyer's aspect sure. or it's going to be, you know, it's going to elevate the attrition. Sure. So, you know, that, those are the basic generalities of what we're looking for. But again, kind of going back to what I initially said, I think the biggest hurdle typically, you know, as if you're a seller, right, if you're a seller is to really make sure that you know what the market is at and that you're dealing with somebody who's going to acquire the book or a potential buyer that's going to shoot you straight and be fair. Right. And also knowing what the value of your portfolio is by knowing your numbers. I think those are the most yeah. important keys. You know, one thing, George, would be, I'm curious your opinion about, um, you know, one thing I found in doing a uh, few buyouts that I've done over the years and helping agents and ISOs, um, I feel like a lot of times the sellers get a little bit too focused on the multiple um, and they really don't talk about the terms at all. And it seems to me like most of the really profitable buyouts that I've done from the seller side has been where I was willing to accept a little bit of the risk and say, okay, you know, I'm only going to get this multiple up front and then I'm going to get this multiple after six months and this one after 12 months or something. And I'm going to have this level of involvement or whatever. And it, it seemed to me like a lot of these deals, I think in the industry, the mindset is that these are really simple, purely financial transactions that are just like, what's my multiple going to be. But I think the reality, it seems to me like a lot of times that the terms also kind of come into play there. What, what's been your experience with that? Sure, I'll go ahead and, and jump in on that. They, you know, so my experience is, yeah, everybody, you know, in the market, it, it, obviously we get into this business to build a portfolio to either collect that residual income, which everybody loves, right? Right. And right. also to one day maybe sell a portion or a piece of it for that nest egg. So when you have colleagues and or business partners and or friends in the business, and you know they start saying, hey, I've throw, I've sold my portfolio or, or a portion of it or I've spoken to such and such broker, you know, you start to hear some multiples that, you know, are, are pretty high, you know, from 20, 30, 40, even 50 times. So we hear numbers like that that are thrown out there. And it and it's not a it's not an across the board, you know, type of structure where you know, do, do right. those numbers exist. Absolutely. They exist. But typically they exist where, you know, the, the seller really needs to make a decision. And are they trying to sell and get out of the business? Right. Or are they trying to sell and stay in the business? And what's the money going to be used for? Is it for something personal? Is it for a home purchase? Or are you using it to scale and accelerate your growth right. in, in, in the industry that we're in? And because you can you can sell your portfolio static, right? Try to collect as much as you can up front and maybe even in one lump sum. You'll get a much lower multiple on something like that. Right. Or you can maybe do a short-term type of a structure where you do guarantee some of the attrition. Maybe you're throwing deals back at any accounts that are lost. Right. 
um, and or maybe you're guaranteeing a monthly payment. And maybe if you do that for 12 months, 24 months, or 36 months, usually the longer you go, the higher that multiple is going to be because it's right. much lower risk into um, into into the purchase for the buyer. Right. And, you know, mm-hmm. and I think Keith has some really good insight on this as well. When he, you know, we when we look to buy some portfolios, and maybe Keith can jump in. You know, we're also looking to see how they were sold. So I don't right. Know, Keith, if you kind of want to jump in on some of that. Sure, sure, a hundred percent. You know, it, it kind kind of to reflect on just what George is covering and, and James himself is. You know, it, it, it. You know, on the underwriting process, you know, it, it goes twofold. As you know, it, it goes from seller, you know, to buyer side, and you know, we really understand the seller side because we're still acquiring deals now. I mean, we're we're, right. you know, we're an ISO. You know, we're, you know, we're in the fight as well. You know, where some sure. buyers, as you know, and I'm sure you spoke to. Uh, you know, some of them are purely uh, investors, and right. you know they don't. You know, they, they they're almost a holding company, if you will, where they have mm-hmm. no um, acknowledgement on how to even manage, optimize, or handle a portfolio. So, you know, one of the things we look at is, of course, how was the deal acquired? You know, was it a true kind of traditional agent model? Um, you know, where the agent walked in front or made a phone call, and the agent is there. And, you know, there's an ISO tether to that. And is there downstream? And, you know, hey, if there's something wrong with the merchant, who does the merchant go to? Are they calling you, Mr. and Mrs. ISO, calling me? Or are they calling the agent? And if we were, you know, if you're looking to sell, you know, what's the guarantee that this agent still gets paid? Well, that's something I'm going to handle. It's like, well, what if you don't? You know, right. what if you, you know, so yeah, you got to look at that downstream as sure. well. You know, that's a... That's one that people overlook. And, you know, that's, again, so like George mentioned, uh, was very specific about the seller really knowing, you know, their book. It's kind of like if you're selling your house, man. You got to know what upgrades you had or what the market's doing or what you've done to improve it or X, Y, and Z or what makes it special. You know, so it all doesn't come to a surprise because when it comes to that kind of surprise factor, that's where the expectations really get, um, you, you, you know, really get off target. So it's really important for us how the deals are sold. Then, you know, is it a local market? Is it a national market? Um, you know, there's so many things that we look at in the underwriting. And, and it's not to weigh it in our favor. It can be weighed in the, the seller's favor as well. Again, our our goal when buying is, um, is, is purchasing from the ISO or agent's perspective because you know we're with them right now you know we really understand so you know we don't like to walk in and just start you know chopping up out multiples or right yeah exactly you know you made a really good point that i actually overlooked was okay well what about the participation model what about if right on the on the earnouts or as you know other people who are staying in the business on go forward strategies right do you want to guarantee you know we've talked to multiple we're actually underwriting a few now where you know they're little books i mean but hey whatever but there's also other books okay would you like to collateralize this on a go forward so you can get the optimal amount we have a and one of them he wants to solve he has you know another business he's looking to fund if you will and he has two more portfolios that he could back it if he because he wants to you he in this particular case wants to achieve the highest multiple possible like okay sure. we can get there by by getting you know creative so it's it's not in any way shape or form 
a cookie cutter process. Right. You know, and if, right. if you if you approach it that way, I don't think you're going to be successful because no. books are built differently with different motivations right. and different expectations. And, you know, you know, hey, look, we look for the good, obviously, like, oh, wow, it's six percent attrition and blah, blah. Oh, my God. Oh, look at this. Hey, we're also not afraid of, you know, let's call it, let's use euphemisms, distressed books. Okay, if this book <laughs> mm-hmm. is distressed, what's happening? Has it not been serviced? Right, is it right. using, you know, antiquated equipment? Mm-hmm. Hey, you know, is the pricing from the 1990s, <laughs> you know? Right. I mean, there's, you know, you know, so, you know, because we're in the business of still acquiring accounts and, and optimizing portfolios is, you know, the distressed ones, we're not, we're not afraid of either, where, you know, some people will, um, you know, will we'll, we'll have, we'll have a buyer come in and really, you know, give them a, just a negative reflection. And it's like, uh, you know, it doesn't have to be that way as well. Again, right. coming from... It doesn't the, need to be combative. The, 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 yeah, the, the agent's perspective. Because, look, at the end of the day, you know, people say, oh, you got to separate business from, 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 from personal. It's like, you know what, man? It's just not us, realistic. Like you, you built this off. You your put your sweat into that. You have right. suffered. Your family has suffered. This is personal. Right. It yeah. is. This is personal. Yeah. You know, think... and, 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 and George and I learned this the hard way, too. Okay, I understand. We learned this when right. we went to market, and, you know, we got very emotional. So, you know, we kind of come <laughs> full circle in the industry. Like, you know, sure. when, we, when we say we get it. We get it, and right. we can be very hot-tempered, and you know we get it. Yeah, you know I think one of the one of the topics that maybe is a little more technical than we usually get into on a uh, an interview, but I, I thought it might be helpful even to just kind of outline a little bit because some of what you guys are saying, I think that there may be agents and ISOs who've never done a buyout, and maybe they don't kind of understand some of these earnouts and things that you're talking about. I think. You know, and Claire, you know, correct me here if I'm wrong, guys, but I mean, pretty much what we're talking about is, you know, when you want to sell your portfolio, there's really the only number that matters there uh, is going to be the initial multiple and then that attrition. Um, and so, in other words, what a lot of times, like I did a buyout, I remember before that was a, you know, multiple hundreds of thousands of dollar buyout. And what I got was I got a, uh, a schedule, I think it was a 24 or 36 month schedule of what is the expected residual on this portfolio by month for the next like 24 months showing what the expected attrition was. And because I had another book of business, as you mentioned, Keith, I was able to guarantee and say, look, if the portfolio drops below X number, I guarantee that I'll transfer some merchants from my existing book over to mm. cover that. And so I was guaranteeing that the attrition was not going to drop below the projected monthly residual payout amount. And by doing that, I got a much higher multiple. I mean, is that, is that kind of what you're, you're kind of referencing, Keith, is a setup sort of like that? A hundred percent, a hundred percent, you know, when you have something to, to support the, the revenue, you know, that, that the, uh, buyer is expecting. Yeah. Right, right. Awesome. Hey, so I want to shift gears for just a minute because I know you guys have another business, uh, which is you're also involved in ATM um, and ATM portfolios, things like that. Now, we haven't talked about that, I don't believe yet, right? On no, our podcast? I, okay. well, I think we have it scheduled coming up. Yeah, we, I think we do. That's right. We have an interview with somebody coming up. But um, why don't you guys, whoever you know, wants to kind of jump in on that, tell us a little bit about ATMs. What would you look at as kind of the, you know, the pros and cons of the ATM business versus merchant services in today's market? Sure, sure. Yeah, this is Keith again. I'll jump in real quick. Um, you know, so the ATM business, you know, this is something that George and I started dabbling in when we started Transmerit um, as an add-on, as, you know, diversification and, 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 you know, additional revenue. And, 
you know, the past couple of years, we, we've done about, you know, we've done about 20 or so. And, you know, uh, uh, you know, where we're at now in the acquisition mode is we've been looking at books of business or I guess in, in, in their terminology, they're called routes, ATM routes. Right. Oh, sure. OK. We've seen, we, we've seen some incredibly strong numbers in those routes by way of attrition, if you will. I mean, very strong where, you know, extremely sticky products. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of these are done and vaulted and serviced by the operator, the owner, so whether right. it is the ISO or the agent who placed it. So, I mean, they're active, they're out there, or some of them that are larger, they have employees, you know, they're they're servicing and or, you know, quote-unquote, vaulting them. Um, you know, so, you know, some of the pros we've seen is like, boy, you know, they're, uh, you know, they're sticky, uh, they produce revenue. Look, these things weigh, you know, a couple of tons or whatever. <laughs> right. Say, you know, enough. Another agent isn't going to walk in and you know replace it with a new one and carry it out. <laughs> they need know? a dolly, so, uh, more than a dolly. Yeah, they yeah, need yeah. a help too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they need so, a fork. Right. They need a forklift to cause attrition to happen. That's always good when you right. when you buy a book of business where it requires a forklift to hurt your right? your numbers. That's usually a good thing. Right. It actually, right, just right, uh, right. just as an aside, I, I heard, heard a story in D.C. not long ago where two guys pulled up a pickup truck to a 7-Eleven, uh, broke through the window, got the dolly out, put the ATM on the back of the truck, and <laughs> took off with it. So That's the only kind of attrition you got to worry about. That's the, the only thing you got to worry trucks. about, guys with pickup trucks and, 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 and sticky <laughs> fingers. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I agree. I agree. You know, and, and so some of the pros are, you know, the locations where these are, you know, continue to be successful, um, you know, motel, hotels, you know, mm-hmm. the convenience stores, gas right. stations, you know, kind of quick service. There's some other uh, uh, huge area of opportunities for, for new placement as well, you know, the cash only and whatnot. And, you know, so, 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 some of the, the cons, of course, is if you're, you know, being overly optimistic and you're promising a new merchant that you got the processing and, hey, what about an ATM? And they're like, yeah. And you're like, hey, I, you know, I'm going to place it. You're like, okay, well, you're going to come out of pocket uh, 2500 bucks more plus shipping and install. And, you know, if it doesn't work, you know, you, know, you own it, you, you can move it. But, you know, when you're placing a new one, you have to be, you know, very cautious of hmm. You know, the revenue stream, mm-hmm. your upfront costs. You know, again, if you're placing it, if the merchant wants to purchase and you're right. you're splitting it. So, you know, there, there, there's pros and cons to, 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 to it all. I'd say the, 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 the biggest pro is that um, it's a great way to diversify your income within the industry right. you go outside of just the processing. Yeah, sure. Just like if you're doing cash advance or, you know, in the past, not so much anymore, the, you know, the gift cards, you know, unfortunately that's kind of obsolete for us agents now, but, um, you know, so you, you, you can round off revenue you know, outside of just the processing. Uh, it's a great way to do it. And hmm. what we've seen is uh, it's, once you have it, it's, it's pretty darn sticky. It's, yeah, it's, it's yeah. good income. It's great. You know, it's an interesting aside. Um, a co- my cousin um, and her husband just opened up a, a marketplace kind of restaurant kind of thing. And before they opened up, they had invited me over. And I'm like, so have you gotten your card processing? Sure. And the first comment, he's like, oh, yeah, we got our processing. We're going to have all, you know, brand new POS system. And here, this is where we're putting our ATM. Yeah. And it was like, you know, immediate because it was a tourist area. 
Sure. And his feeling was, you know, even more important than my processing, I have an ATM. <laughs> That's funny. Get, get him the extra revenue in there. Yeah, it, yeah, it's funny. Like one thing you mentioned there, Keith, is like, you know, it does kind of bring new meaning to free terminal placement when the terminal costs 2500 bucks. Uh-huh. Make, yeah, you know, right? you know, not, you know, you not not to take George's efforts out of them, but right now, you know, George had just signed up an account. You know, it's got, you know, I'll let George speak for it, but it has, you know, approximately about three or four kind of more cash-driven businesses right within the same. Uh, I haven't been there; it's in Chicago area, and where all three merchants are like, oh, we could have a shared ATM right here, mm-hmm. in, you know, in, in our nice. in our common area. Sure. Where it's, you know, so again, so it's you know, it's it's a nice uh, little add-on location location mm-hmm. definitely well so before we get into uh, at the very end here i definitely want to get some contact information of like where people go to, to learn more about you but before we do that uh one thing i always like to ask uh on these interviews um do you guys have any tips uh just kind of general idea you know we have a lot of listeners that are out selling merchant services you guys have come up in the business now you've gotten to a level where you're buying portfolios any any tips you want to share with salespeople or isos out there that just kind of things that would help them as they're uh, building their business as you guys have done Sure. This is George. I'll go ahead and jump in on that. So I would say if you're an agent, um, an agent that's looking to build a team or a a small ISO, maybe up to mid-level ISO, you know, you're kind of just getting started or you're looking to scale. You know, my first tip, you know, and most of this all comes from experience, right? But my first tip would be to keep it as lean as possible for as long as possible. You know, and what I mean by that is obviously... You know, when you're when you're building your business or building your book, you know, you can incur quite a few costs yep. very, very quickly. Everybody wants to grow as quickly as possible. And a lot of times, you know, we start to get these thoughts as business owners uh, in our mind where, hey, I got to go get that nice office and I got to go add, you know, five, 10, 15 employees or I need a, I need a few people to help me and I have to, you know, spend all my money on a website and all these other things, which while that stuff is important and it is important and you're going to need it as you grow, it should just come organically. And it should come organically by the way of you're spending all of your money or as much of your revenue that you're earning and you're putting it back into marketing dollars. So then you can create more revenue. Now, if you're focused on new sales, new accounts, new revenue, and that's where you're putting all of your investment at, you're going to return that back many times over. And I think along the way, you know, we kind of start to lose focus um, as we're growing as to what we think we need, you know, different Mm -hmm. vendors, relationships, again, you know, hard uh, infrastructure, computers, offices, et cetera, when really what we need to focus on is marketing. And and I think that growth, if, if you now need to grow because you have several more accounts that you need to service or you now need to grow because the phone's ringing off the hook, then, then that's a good reason to grow and to add another body or person. Right. Mm-hmm. Out, of, out of necessity, person. not out of, not out of just, uh, you know, I want to, you know, I want to be able to say that I have 10 employees. Do you right. need 10 employees? Right. 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 You should always, you should always be trying to grow past your cost, right? So your costs are yep. facing your growth, not you paying into cost to try then to, to grow. Right. right? Yeah, so, that's boy, George. That be, that that, be, that's great advice. I think you know, it's like I don't really hear that as much in the industry. And I think I'll tell you, George. You know, it's funny. I'd be curious your thoughts on this, though. Haven't you also noticed the the opposite of this? Meaning, 
a lot of reps who don't have any expenses because they don't they don't ever want to invest. Their business card looks like it was made in 1980, <laughs> and it's like you know, yeah, you're driving that nice BMW and that's exciting, but you know, you could have double your residual. But they don't want to invest anything. So it seems like the two extremes are the individual rep who has the potential to build a team or an ISO and, and really you know grow in the business, but they don't want to invest back into it because their personal expenses are too high. And then you have the ones who, when they do start investing, then all of a sudden their their business expenses go too high because it's more of a more of a pride of I want to be able to have this office and this right. computer and this car and this whatever, right. and and then they just overspend. Yeah, so I, I think yeah, I think both ends of the uh, of the spectrum are not too great for business. <laughs> no, uh, I will say, I will say that you know, as an agent, it, it, it may work for you as an agent and even or for a small team or a small ISO you know, to kind of, you know, keep it extra frugal, if you will, when it comes to expenses. And, and, and usually that only works. So if you're playing within your space, so right. that, that you really have some area of expertise. So my, my next tip, if you will, that I would throw sure. out there is, is that, you know, if you can separate yourself because you're playing within a certain niche segment or yep. certain target audience or market where you have some more areas or knowledge or expertise maybe you used to be a restaurant operator and now you're going to target restaurants when you're you're focused on accounts so you speak the same language if you will Mm -hmm. you know you know how to enter you know what their business areas of opportunity are and you know what they need to improve and what their what that business owner's common struggles are and what they're thinking about every day on the way to work right so if you if you have that in a certain segment maybe it's medical maybe it's restaurants maybe it's technology etc if you have that i think my next tip would be that will help you keep your costs down because you're going to have a competitive advantage there but also more so if you're looking at it on a much higher level you know it's really hard to compete today with the large the super large acquirers and super isos that are out there right you know they have mass amounts of marketing dollars and that they're gobbling up all you know small independent business owners to large enterprise level so you know, if you want to be a player in this game, I think today, you really need to approach it from a consultant perspective where you're going in there, you're really trying to provide solutions for the business owner and payment processing should be a tool for that solution. And if you have an area of expertise that can further separate yourself, you know, that's only going to help you even more so. But, you know, the goal today is, you know, people want that one-on-one attention and they want somebody who's going to go into their business and wrap their arms around them and give them a hug and really learn about their business and really help them improve something, a process, a solution, you know, so where they can actually get real value. Because if we're talking about winning, you know, on a smaller level and you, you don't have the ad budget and you don't, maybe you don't have the money to invest in it or you're going to grow organically. That's really the X factor that we see that's going to make the difference to allow you to not only compete, but really be successful. Oh, that's great. Wow. Great advice, George. Thanks so much for the tips and uh, really good stuff. So so let me ask you guys, if uh, someone's listening, they want to learn more about Transmerit as an ISO or as potentially selling a book of business, something along those lines, um, How would they? what's the best way to learn about you guys or reach out to you? I'll go ahead. Yeah, I'll go ahead, Sure. So yeah, they can, they can find us on our website. It's simply www.transmerit.com dot com t r a n s m e r i t transmerit dot com 
Um, they can fill out a form there and request a consultation. And they can also simply call us. I mean, Keith and I make ourselves available. Our corporate number is 877-265-5753. Again, it's 877-265-5753. Shoot us a call. Um, you know, they always get somebody live on the operator right away once they wait, make their way through the phone tree. And then, you know, just ask for Keith or I will be happy to have on a phone call. And, awesome. You know, just give advice, your ideas, and or, you know, speak to anything about any type of acquisition opportunities. Great. Keith, George, thank you guys so much for your time today. Uh, really great interview. I appreciate all the uh, all the thought that went into that. And uh, that was some good information for everybody in the industry. So thanks for sharing that. Yes, very thoughtful responses. Thanks, guys. Hey, thanks for having us. Thank you very much, James, and congratulations on all your success. And we've actually been following, uh, we've been following your your training and, and, and insights for you know, a couple of years now. Oh, that's awesome, man. Well, thank you guys very much. I appreciate it, and uh, wishing you guys great success over there. Have a great day. This is the Insiders Report with Patty Murphy, brought to you by GreenSheet.com, a premier resource for the electronic payments industry. The GreenSheet has been on the beat since 1983 always focused on boosting the feet on the street in our evolving sphere. Credit and debit cards are a preferred option for many consumers paying businesses, but that's not the case when businesses are paying other businesses. According to several studies, at least 40% of B2B payments these days are made by check. Among small businesses, it's closer to 60%. Mm, wow. So it should follow that B2B payments are a large and growing opportunity right. for the acquiring space. In fact, B2B payments today outstrip all other types of payments, and this trend is only going to continue. According to the international consulting firm Deloitte, B2B payments have been expanding at a combined annual growth rate of about 5.8% mm. over the last several years and, and uh, will exceed $23 trillion by wow. 2020. That's amazing. That's talk, amazing. Talk about a big market segment. <laughs> talk about I mean, you know, to put that in perspective, consider – you know, the Fed, which does a report on consumer and business spending. Right. Right. Uh, I guess it's like triennial, every three years. They In uh, 2015, the last time they did this, consumers spent just over $3.1 trillion. Wow. On credit cards and 2.5 using debit cards. Mm -hmm. So you put those together. It's like four times that. That's the size of wow. that market. Yeah, so businesses, business to business spending is four times what consumer consumer to business. Spending. Now, what about those? So, what about just electronic payments? So, you're saying that was sixty percent of it was cards? No, sixty uh, percent of it is checks. Checks. So, forty percent of it is cards. Right. Or ACH. Or ACH. Or wire. Okay. And actually, I have a few statistics in here. I okay. Have to All right. Cool. Ferret out, but it's yeah. Wow. Um. So you know, obviously, replacing checks with card payments. Has some brings some real benefits. Definitely, you know, better cash management allows um, suppliers to reduce you know days sales outstanding, and um, you know, a lot of businesses are if they're using their card rather than the cash outlays, they'll pay mm -hmm. they'll pay earlier. Sure. Right. Sure. So anyway, here the the uh, cards most commonly used for B two B transactions today are purchasing cards. But they account for only 1% of total commercial payment flows. Huh. So 1% of yeah. all of wow. that B2B spending yeah. is with purchasing cards. Which still, are, still $200 billion, though. Right. It's still it's nothing to sneeze yeah, at. I mean, but, you know. 
But, I mean, consider what the opportunity, you know, the untapped opportunity is. The second and third most commonly used cards um, are T&E and virtual cards. Sure. T&E, yep. e you can obviously see. Right. You know, um, and that's what the early MX and Diners Clubs were really meant for. Right. Um, virtual cards, as the name implies, are not plastic cards. Instead, they're accounts that generate 16-digit numbers for individual transactions and reference transac transaction level detail, you know, level one, level two detail, um, that gets sent to the supplier's bank account using a file-based process. Okay. So these are probably for, like, larger ticket right. transactions where, you know, as, as a business, if one of your employees is buying a piece of equipment for $14,000, you right. want to know which employee bought it, what was the purchase order number, exactly, et cetera, et cetera. And that's the kind of information <clears throat> that, the, you know, they can do. Right. And, you know, they and most of these support integration with these B2B portals and accounting right. systems. Sure. And the whole idea, of course, is to get as close to straight through processing. Right. As possible. Sure. But none of these are, are widely used. Um, the Association for Financial Professionals does a survey every year, and they found that 11% of all B2B payments mm -hmm. are plastic. Wow. Yeah, that's a low number there. That's a very low yeah. number. I mean, especially since, you know, what did we say? Like 1% of all commercial flows are, are the um, purchasing cards. So right. So basically 10% is everything else. Wow. Um. <laughs> Now, one reason for the slow adoption of cards for B2P payments is obviously is interchange. Right. You know, the interchange model was built around consumer payments. Sure. And they carry a lot higher risks. Yep. Um, another problem is that most POS devices, or certainly many POS devices, aren't aren't um, configured to capture level two and level three data, which is, sure. you know, what renders these transactions less vulnerable to fraud. Right, and also less expensive on interchange. And less expensive. I mean, the interchange, sure. sure. You know, just for folks who may not be familiar, level two um, data includes details like the merchant's name and zip code, transaction amount and date, tax amount, plus, uh, plus customer codes or purchase order numbers. Mm -hmm. Level three includes shipping um, and destination zip codes, uh, invoice and order numbers, product and commodity codes, item descriptions and quantities, and, and similar details. And so this is all basically, if I'm understanding right, <clears throat> Patty, this is all because, you know, if you get all that information, then right. if the other, if one of the parties says, oh, this was a fraudulent transaction, we didn't mean to spend that $40,000. Right. You're like, yes, you yes, did. Yes, you did. There's the purchase order number. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Okay. And that's, that's what makes the fraud less, and that's what makes the interchange less. Sure. Right. Okay. So another um, more obvious deterrent to um, B2B card payments is the fact that most corporate accounting systems have been built around the check system. Right. You know, checks and ACH is what they've been doing for, for years. Right. Um, you know, those accompanying remittance details, it's so easy with checks to just strip off that invoice. Right. And scan it into your accounts receivable system. Sure. And... You know, then there are, of course, the uh, the hard dollar costs. Um, unlike uh, card acquiring, check collection is rarely priced explicitly by banks. Right. I mean, <clears throat> and when it does, as in the case of lockbox operations, maybe the fees are a dollar transaction. Right. So $10,000 check for a dollar. Right. Um, a little better than the interchange rate on a B2B transaction. Yeah, for sure. 
obviously the B2B market isn't for all ISOs and agents. Um, it's far more specialized in traditional merchant sales, and it requires more than just a low-cost alternative for moving payments. Right. The opportunities, one consultant told me, come from being able to eliminate the friction from the supplier's accounts receivables processes. So more of a cash flow pitch. That's exactly. Improve your cash flow. It's all about cash flow. Mm, interesting. And, and, and I would imagine the fraud part would be another. Right. But, but the cash flow is what they care the most about. Right. You know, it reminds me when I first got into uh, reporting about payments, I had a, my beat was the cash management beat, corporate cash management. And on my very first uh, conference I went to, I asked somebody to explain to me what's the essence of corporate cash management. Right. He said, the essence of corporate cash management is you want to distribute checks by dog sled and collect them at the speed of light. <laughs> right. Yeah, because it's all about getting, all about that float. It's all about that float. Sure. Um, so, um, you know, opportunities uh, include in some of the verticals include distribution. Sure. Uh, broadcasting. Mm-hmm. Uh, manufacturing, waste management. That's a big one. Property management and healthcare. Oh, sure. Those are all really, especially yeah. healthcare with the, all everything that's going on in the health. Mm-hmm. field these days yeah um now obviously i it's interesting that you know these opportunities from for b2b payments haven't been lost on the card brands um both mastercard and visa have announced b2b initiatives in the past couple of years uh visa partnered with bill trust to advance virtual card payments it's also made a strategic investment in that firm mm. and um bill trust's whole um deal is cash flow automation tools like virtual card ca- capture Sure. You know, as the uh, CEO of Bill Trust, uh, Flint Lane, said to me, you just can't solve this problem by changing the cost structure. All right. You know, you want to get B2B out there, you have to do more than just make yeah. it a cheaper alternative. Sure. Um, MasterCard has built something it calls a B2B hub, and its its efforts in that um, area are focused on card issuing banks. Okay. Um, that they can offer to their small, mid-sized company. Mm-hmm. Um, it's technology partner in the project is a company called Avid Exchange, and they uh, specialize in invoice automation for virtual cards and ACH transactions. Hmm. Um, it claims integrations with more than 130 accounting and other back off systems, office systems across 5,500 customers in North America. Now, here's an interesting thing. Um, I talked with this uh, Michael Prager, who's the company CEO. And he said that there are over 350,000 underserved businesses in their target market. Hmm. Wow. You know, and the, I think about it. Those are the kind of businesses that are, can't necessarily, you know, small businesses right. that aren't right. necessarily qualifying for loans. They need, mm-hmm. they're looking for automation to improve right. the receivables management. Sure. Um, so uh, just like just like Visa, Mastercard has an ownership stake in in this company as well. Right. Uh, as does Fifth Third Bank, which is a major mm. acquiring bank. Yeah, sure. So I thought that was very interesting. Yeah. So I guess you know my my uh, bottom line comments are you know exploring B two B market opportunities might not register on your ISO MLS radar. Mm-hmm. Um. But as companies like Visa and MasterCard and, and new players come into the field, you know, there, there's clearly um, momentum towards pursuing more B2B opportunities. Right. And um, 
I just think it's a good idea for folks to, you know, stay ahead of this curve and uh, absolutely pounce on the opportunity should it should it arise. Well, and to me too, I think one of the other big advantages as a you know ISO or MLS is that these are the businesses that nobody's calling, right? Nobody's walking into, right? Um, and so you know it presents a unique opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you go to an industrial park. And exactly. walk into all the, industri- the buildings in the industrial park, you know, bring a hard hat mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, walk in there and mm-hmm. you'd be surprised. There's opportunities. They're, ex- they're accepting a lot of credit card payment or if they're not, they may be interested in doing so to improve their cash flow. Right. And, and, and I was thinking when you were saying that, you know, um, office parks, mm-hmm. you know, um, yep. you know, you go in. I, I, I've been in a couple of these buildings, you know, even around here where your yeah. offices are. Right. You, know, you have accountants, you have architects, you right. have um, um, marketing companies, you right. know, telesales. Mm-hmm. All of these are companies that are doing business with other businesses. Absolutely. Yeah, these office parks are, are very underserved, yeah. for sure, for our industry. So well, good stuff, Patty. That's some great opportunities, good things to think about. This is Questions from the Field, brought to you by InstantQuoteTool.com. With over 30 training courses covering everything from sales objections to statement analysis, ISOs are using our learning management system to help new agents understand the industry and how to sell merchant services. Industry veterans love our courses because we dive deeper into concepts such as interchange and explore new industry trends like cash discounting, NFC, and the resurgence of American Express with the Optimum program. Put all of these training courses together with the leading proposal creation tool for merchant services agents in the field, and we believe our branded ISO solution and individual user package is a must-have. Visit instantquotetool.com today or email support at instantquotetool.com to learn more. Thank you so much for tuning in to Questions from the Field. I'm here with Patty Murphy, and our first question comes from Brian. And uh, he asks us, he says that uh, with his uh, level of experience, he just has one quick question, and that is, how to go after multi-site franchise-type locations for merchant services? Mm. Very, very, very profitable. I would actually go so far as to say that my first two years in merchant services, I made... I bet I made 60% of my total gross income off of multi-location. Wow. And the reason is because I, I figured something out really early on, which is most processors pay you um, per mid. Mm-hmm. Each location needs a mid. Mm-hmm. And I realized that it didn't take that much extra work to sell 10 locations versus one. Right. So I did a little math there and realized, wait a second, you know. So let me let me tell you some tips real quick, Brian. Number one. Really simple. I can tell you the sales process because I've done it a, a many, many times. Um, pick a location and walk in. That's step one. Doesn't matter which one, just walk in. Step two, ask them, are you corporately owned or are you a franchise location? Um, and you know, when they if they say they're franchise, then say, oh, great. How do I get in hold with the, with the franchise owner? Mm-hmm. If they say they're corporate owned, ask them, oh, like, where's your corporate office? Is it local or is it national? If they say, oh, yeah, it's in you know Chicago or whatever, and we have four thousand locations, well, then you're like, okay, have a great day. Right. If they say, oh, it's you know twenty five minutes from here, forty five minutes from here, we have you know fifteen twenty locations. Perfect. Um, get in your car and step three is drive to the corporate location. Right. Often the corporate location will be just another normal location. There's a Subway, I still am trying to sell locally here, uh, that you know they have about 12 or 15 locations. One of them is the corporate location, and you can't tell when you walk in, but behind the normal Subway thing, there's like a suite of offices. Uh-huh. Um, and so a lot of them have something like that. So you go in there, 
Um, next thing I'll tell you is with the multiple location stuff, it's a lot more about the numbers and about the referrals and references. Mm -hmm. And so you got to have those references. Um, the first multi-location deal will be the toughest one you sell. Um, it gets progressively easier. Sure. Uh, they're all, they all want to know who you're working with already. Um, I will tell you lean heavily on your super ISO, your processor in these situations. Um, you, you know, when you're selling that first multi-location, my first multi-location deal, I remember it very vividly because I made a ton of money off. It, it was a pizza place that had like seven locations. I didn't go in there like I normally do as the James, the local business owner guy. Right. I went in as James, an agent of the company I was selling for at the time. Mm -hmm. And I said, oh my, they have hundreds of multiple location pizza shops, which was true. Right. I didn't have you know, hundreds of multiplication. That was sure. my first one. But you've got to have that. Uh, and so go in like that um, and then give them a bid. And, you know, it's it's usually going to be coming down to the numbers. The biggest difference between selling an individual location and multiple location is that there is much less emotion involved in the decision. Mm -hmm. The multiple location places are multiple location for a reason. And that reason is they're better at running their business. And so they're usually pretty, you know, much of a stickler on the numbers. So my advice to you is jump into the numbers um, and you'll really give them something that's a, a you know, logical uh, pitch rather than a emotional pitch, which is what you would normally do. Anything to add on that, Patty? Well, I think that's, that's pretty much. That's one where I've just, I've done it yeah. so much. I literally feel like in my sleep, I could tell somebody how to sell those. Right. I, right. I will say it takes a long time, too. I mean, that, the problem with those is the the sales cycle. Sure. Most reps give up. I mean, literally, the subway I'm talking about, mm -hmm. I'll stop by there again in a month. I've been there um, seven times in the last two years. Wow. I'll sell them eventually. Mm -hmm. And when I do, it's 15 locations. I'll make $3,000 a month when I sell them. Yeah, so it's worth the time. <laughs> Heck yeah. yeah. Anyway, all right, next one. Greg, good question here. He says, can I make a living in merchant services right now? <laughs> sure. It just there's, depends on how luxurious <laughs> a life you want. Right? Exactly. Well, Greg, there's there's three variables. Variable number one, are you going to work? Mm -hmm. Variable number two, can you sell? Mm -hmm. Variable number three, what's your compensation plan? So take all three of those, put them together on a spreadsheet. I always tell agents this, get an Excel spreadsheet and go month one, month two, month three, label them across, mm -hmm. figure out starting with how many businesses are you going to walk into or call on a daily basis, a weekly basis, um, run the numbers through. Um, that's one thing I've done with a lot of agents and ISOs, kind of help them run those numbers. Uh, feel free to email me, glad to answer questions. But, you know, this is a personal question. So I guess the way I'll answer this is, Greg, do I know salespeople that started in merchant services recently that are making a living? Yes. Um, they're making $50,000 a year, $60,000 a year. Um, cash discounting has made it a little easier because I just talked to a rep, uh, oh my, was it two days ago? Uh, he's selling five cash discount deals a month. Mm -hmm. He's leasing a terminal to them for $69 a month. Mm -hmm. He's making $2,200 per sale. That's his average deal. Right, right. So he's making you know, $10,000, $12,000 every single month, plus his residuals are building up. Right. Um, that's that's a model that works. Um, so, you know, yeah, you could. Uh, but again, there's those three variables, work, um, talent, and compensation. And you definitely want to take all three of those into consideration. Yes. Right? Let's go to our last one. I'm going to leave this one to Patty. Uh, what are the legal ramifications that a merchant not offering EMV is going to face? How would you answer that, Patty? Uh, significant. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's 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 a no-win situation if they're not offering EMV. I mean, basically, the rules changed um, under the under the car association rules. Um, if you do not have an EMV terminal, 
and you get hit with fraud, you know, your your data is compromised and fraudulent accounts or uh, fraudulent transactions are initiated as a result, you're going to eat all the losses. Right. Well, and I think to be clear, too, I just realized, I mean, the way that they worded this, I mean, actually, the legal ramifications are nothing. No. It's financial. financial. It's yeah, financial. it's financial. Yeah, I mean, legal... Not, in- you're not going to get sued because you don't have an EMV chip card machine. Right, but you kind of sort of would get sued by Visa and MasterCard in terms of, you know, the non-compliance fees. <laughs> right, right. It's not officially a lawsuit, but right. it's... It's going to be Six on the way, half a dozen the other. It's, yeah. a, it's money. It's money. And, and you know, there's also going to be, you know, there's not only going to be, you're going to get fined, you're going to have to pay for, for losses... And you're going to have to suffer reputational damage. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, what are the legal ramifications? None. What are the ramifications? A lot. A lot. (laughs) Great question. Hey, everybody, thanks for questions from the field. Do me a favor. Send me some more questions. James at ccsalespro.com. We've actually gotten some more questions in since the last episode, and so we'll be adding those in. But uh, always looking for new questions so Patty and I can spread our wisdom. Thank you. For what we have. We can't spread it very far, but we'll we'll do our best. We'll do our best. (laughs) Thanks, everybody. Have an awesome day. Thank you for listening to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Whether you are an industry veteran, processing executive, or just trying to learn about the payment space, we appreciate your time. The Merchant Sales Podcast is a joint production from greensheet.com and ccsalespro.com. We hope you will tune in next week for more information and tips on building your merchant services business.